Hello, everybody, and welcome to Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. Our guest this week is Jim Nagy. He's the executive director of the Senior Bowl and a former NFL scout. And he's going to talk about the Jets draft class. And uh, Jim, uh, we've had him on the show last year, and he is really knowledgeable, and he brings a lot of insights to the table. And I think you're going to enjoy his take on the Jets draft picks, uh, four of whom participated in the Senior Bowl. So Jim has some uh, interesting tidbits that you didn't know about these players. These are tidbits that I didn't even know about some of them. And that'll be coming up in the second quarter. In the third quarter, we'll have our Twitter mailbag. For now, uh, just just want to discuss current events and obviously a lot of fans are focusing on Logan Ryan the free agent cornerback from the Titans the Jets are interested in him they've been talking to him for several days uh, I think the idea that a deal is done or that the Jets were somehow uh, convinced that they had him locked up is premature do I think they'll get him I think, yeah, I think there's a, my gut tells me I think they have a really good chance, and I'll explain in a second why I think that. But it's not a done deal. At least it wasn't as of the time we were recording this. Uh, in fact, he went on the NFL Network on Thursday morning. And, uh, <laughs> you know, anytime you see a player doing uh, TV and media interviews when he's in a negotiation or as a free agent, it usually means he's trying to drum up some interest. You know, they don't appear out of the blue for, for their health. There's a reason for it. And he's probably trying to stimulate his market. The Jets have all the leverage right now. And, the you know, the, reportedly he's looking for $10 million, which is what he made last year on his uh, deal with the Titans. There is no chance he is getting $10 million on a one-year deal. There's a reason why he's unsigned right now. In my opinion, he's probably a 4 to $5 million player. And the thing that puzzles me a little bit is, you know, he's a slot corner. That's where he played primarily last season with Tennessee. The Jets have Brian Poole, and they just re-signed him for $5 million, and they really like Brian Poole. So uh, it's a bit of a redundancy there. Yes, Ryan can play outside, but he only had 91 coverage snaps last year as an outside corner. And uh, so uh, is he better than what they have on the outside right now? I'd say he's probably their second best outside corner, aside for Pierre Desir. But, you know, that's not his forte. Now, he allowed 10 catches and 8 and 10 targets, 8 catches and 10 targets last year out of those 91 coverage snaps. And granted, that is a very small sample size. But for those of you who are into the analytics, that actually... Uh, his uh, passer rating allowed was about 150 last year. That ranked 115th out of 116 corners based on 75 coverage snaps as an outside corner. Again, a small sample size, but yet it shows it's not his strength. His strength is playing in the slot where he can do a lot of different things. He's a good tackler which fits into the Greg uh, Williams model. He can blitz. He had four sacks last year. He's a good uh, 
He makes plays on the ball. He had intercept, four interceptions. He had, uh, I think 18 passes defensed. Uh, he also gave up, uh, five touchdowns in the slot last year. So a little bit of an all or nothing type thing. I think he'd be a good addition for the Jets if they can get him at the reasonable number. Like I said, about four million. Otherwise it's becoming a redundancy. Why pay that money for a position you already have? Now there's talk that Miami's interested. I'm not really buying that. You know, the Flores, obviously he knows him from New England. I think that's the connection. He's probably trying to use that as, as leverage. But look at what Miami's got. They're paying $31 million a year for Byron Jones and Xavier Howard at corner. And they just drafted the kid out of Auburn, Noah Igbinagani. First round pick out of Auburn, who's probably going to be their slot guy. So I don't think they have an overwhelming need for Logan Ryan. Like I said, I don't think the Jets do either. They're, they'd be bidding against themselves if they offered him what he's looking for. So I think you may, maybe he's had made a decision by the time you hear this. Hopefully not. But, uh, I, again, it would be a good get for the Jets because he's a solid player. He's got solid character. I've actually met him when I was covering some Patriots last uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, met him in the locker room. Very charismatic guy. He's from New Jersey. He went to Rutgers. I think he really wants to stay in New Jersey. So uh, you know he'd be a good addition to the locker room. He's a good chemistry guy. But uh, I, I think fans are overrating his importance. Like Logan Ryan is going to not change the dynamic of their defense. He'd be another complimentary player if they get him and they get him at the right price. Back in a sec with Jim Nagy. I'd like to welcome in uh, Jim Nagy. He's the executive director of the Reese's Senior Bowl. He's also a draft analyst for ESPN and he's been in the scouting game a long time, 18 years as an NFL scout. And during that time, he was with uh, six uh, Super Bowl teams and had a nice run with the Patriots. So, Jim, really appreciate you taking the time and joining Flight Deck. Yeah, Rich, thanks for having me on. Uh, appreciate coming back on, and and it's cool. We're we're still we're still talking two thousand and one or two thousand and twenty uh, draft. So, uh, appreciate you having me on. No, no, I think it was great last year, and I think the fans are so into the draft. It's like a year-round thing, you know. So, I think NFL fans, especially Jet fans, they're so passionate about the draft. And they would talk draft uh, and 12 months a year. So, and the, th- the interesting thing is, you know, as as executive director of the Senior Bowl, you have a, a ton of players who get drafted every year, and four of them were drafted by Joe Douglas and the Jets. And I, I just want to start off with the top guy that they picked out of your game, Denzel Mims, who they picked up at the 59th pick toward the bottom of the second round, and. Uh, I, I think was a good value in that spot. Now you saw him for a week out there. What do you think of Denzel Mims? Yeah, Denzel, um, where they got him, like you said, great value. Uh, he came down to Mobile probably for most teams, um, you know, late third, early fourth round. Um, we saw him a couple times in the fall live. Our scouts did. Uh, we had a, Our Southwest scout was living in Austin, Texas, so he caught a few Baylor games this fall. Uh, really liked Denzel. You know, and it, it, you know, it seemed like talking to guys around the league, like he had a shot to go there in the late first. Um, so to get him in there in the second's a good value. He's, uh, you know, in terms of that, just the height, weight, speed factor with this guy, it was probably Denzel Mims and Chase Claypool um, being the top guys in this draft. You know, he's Denzel's six three and change. He was two hundred and seven, two hundred eight pounds. Um, you know, through the process, 
and you know ran high four threes, low four fours consistently. So from a heightweight speed standpoint, he's elite. Um, and then really, what really set him apart at the combine was that six 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 three cone, which I, I believe was the fastest of any receiver there. And, and, and again, that that drill is really designed for shorter. <laughs> Shorter guys with the lower center of gravity um, and better at the uh, short area change of direction stuff. So um, for a 6'3 guy to post a time like that, it's pretty incredible. And where that equates, you know, in a receiver skill set is obviously at the top of a route. So, um, you know, you go back to Denzel's tape at Baylor um, in that league that they play a lot of soft man and zone coverage. So, you know, you don't see him get pressed. You don't see, you know, someone in his hip pocket and having to separate which is where he made the jump in mobile is, is that he, you saw all that stuff. Um, we, you know, in one-on-one drills, um, he did a great job shaking people at the line of scrimmage. He had that body quickness that a lot of bigger guys don't um, to get away from people at the line. And then at the top of the route, he consistently separated and he made a bunch of crazy plays on the ball. Um, there probably wasn't a better guy during our week in terms of making those contested plays on the ball and those acrobatic plays on the ball. So big catch radius guy. Um, I think he's going to be a really friendly target for Sam Darnold. It's going to be interesting to see how all these receivers from this class kind of transition, um, you know, in an abbreviated offseason. Uh, that's really a hard position to transition even when you have a full offseason. So not getting those physical reps with the quarterback might really hurt this entire class. But um, really like Denzel, he, he's going to bring a, a unique skill set to that receiver group. They don't really have a guy like him right now. Um, so I thought in the second round that was a great pick. Yeah, you make a great point about the, the, the lack of an offseason and how the receivers have to make the adjustment. A lot of fans think it's easy for receivers. They just go out and run routes, but, you know, there is a lot more to it than that. And I'm just wondering, I guess the one concern I had about him is coming from that Baylor offense, when you had said in that conference, you know, you see a lot of soft zone, soft man-to-man there. You don't see a lot of Baylor receivers thriving in the NFL. I'm wondering – what is it about that offense? Is it just the simplicity of it, you know, that makes it hard for these guys to make the transition? And how long do you think it would take Denzel to be able to do that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't lump Denzel in with those other guys. And I, I'm with you, um, you know, the Coleman's and, and guys like that. I mean, there's, there's been some guys not make the transition well. Um, they've been a little different there the last couple of years under Matt Rule. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what people, what I think goes overlooked is the fact that in college football you're running – all those kids are running locked routes for the most part. So in the NFL, um, you're having to read coverages and adjust on the fly um, and be on the same page with your quarterback, and it's, it's very different. So um, I think the NFL is looking at those Baylor guys the last couple of years through a little bit different lens. There's not quite as, uh, you know, the helmet bias that we, we tend to have when guys don't pan out at the next level at certain schools. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't put Denzel in that category, but I, I totally understand what you're saying. Let's talk about their third-round pick out of Florida, who's in your game as well, Jabari Zaniga. To me, a really interesting guy because when he did play, when he was healthy, he produced. And unfortunately, he was dealing with some injuries. Uh, what did you learn about him that week in Mobile? Yeah, he was. He was he was banged up quite a bit. So, you know, went to the Week Zero game last year when they played, kicked off the season in Orlando against Miami. Um, He's been a guy we've been watching for the last couple of years. Going back to my time when I was scouting in Seattle, Jabari's been a good player at Florida. You know, and this this year he just he just couldn't he couldn't stay healthy. So um, the week in Mobile was big for him just because he was able to show himself um, at a hundred percent. You know, what you like about him, he has. I mean, to me, the thing I like most about him was um, his versatility as a pass rusher. He's uh, 
You know, he can threaten off the edge, and he's also a mismatch inside. So he's a guy you can move around, and he can he can get to the quarterback for multiple alignments. I think, uh, you know, his weight can kind of go up and down. He's one of those guys that has a moldable body. Um, you can you can kind of make him whatever you want to make him. Uh, similar to like a Marlon Davidson from Auburn, who the Falcons picked in the second round, I thought was a similar type of guy. I mean, they're different body types, but both guys that can fluctuate and get to, you know, get to different weights. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they see Jabari fitting on base downs. And that's probably where his, where, you know, they'll have him weight-wise, where they expect him to play. Um, but again, really versatile, has a, has a slippery knack as a rusher and, uh, you know, a good tester. It's just unfortunate he couldn't stay healthy this year. They had John Grenard, you know, the grad transfer from Louisville who went in the third round of the Texans. They would have been a really dynamic duo off the edges if, had they been able to, uh, you know, be on the field together. And that just didn't happen much for the Gators this year. But, again, if you can find pass rush help in the third round, um, that's really good value. Yeah, Greg Williams is a pretty creative defensive coach, so you would think he'd be able to come up with some uh... – some different ways to use them. Do you see him as a rookie just easing in as a situational type rusher? Would that be his role if you had to project? I, yeah, I would think so. I think that, I think that makes the most sense. I think that's the easiest, easiest path for him to, to get on the field. Uh, and you look, you look at their depth chart right now and, you know, as an edge rush guy, if, they, if they're running a, a, you know, a base, a base format, you know, a three man front, what, what it looks like they're doing. And again, I lose track of scheme a little bit. I'm so consumed with the college football stuff. But, uh, if Greg's running more of a, an odd man front on sub downs, um, you could see Zaniga playing outside linebacker and moving down, um, and rushing over guard. So yeah, that, because he, because he does know how to rush. I mean, a lot of guys struggle transitioning to the next level because they just went in college with speed. Um, or they overwhelm people with power. Just they, you know, they really rely on their physical tools, and they don't really know how to rush yet. Um, I think Jabari has a nice feel for it. He, you know, he's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. So I, w- I would expect him, uh, you know, to be a sub down guy right away. Let's stick with another Gator here in the fourth round. The, the Jets seem to have an affinity for Florida players uh, in recent years, but uh, their running back, Lamichael Pirine. To me, I'm very intrigued by this guy because he was a productive player at Florida. He was their leading rusher. Very, it seems like a really solid guy. He doesn't fumble, and you know, but yet the speed isn't. I think he ran a four six at the combine. Uh, What are your thoughts on uh, on Lamichael, and what did you take away from him that week you were with him in Mobile? Yeah, Lamichael, he's a local Mobile guy from Theodore High School here. So he was a he was a nice get for our game. We we had a great time having him down here. He's kind of a fan favorite. I've been tracking this guy since high school, um, and and he had a really nice career there in Florida. Uh, a couple things they they haven't been great on the offensive line during his time there. And then uh, you know up until this year when Kyle Trask got on the field, they they finally got some efficient play at quarterback. So. This is a guy that's been running behind a, you know, a position group for them that hasn't been great in his four years and, and really running against a lot of stacked boxes in Florida. So, you know, you can't just look at the numbers and look at like a yards per carry and, and, and judge LaMichael Pirine. Um, you know, speed, I'll say one thing, just, uh, you know, kind of a big picture um, comment on the running back position. I think, I think 40 time and, and speed is the most overrated thing when it comes to that position. There's, there's a ton of great 4-6 running backs that have played in the league. We, um, when I was with Seattle a few years ago is when, when Nick Chubb and those guys were coming out of Georgia, um, 
you know, we went and we did a study on four, six runners that, that have come out and man, it's like a who's who of, of pro bowl list. So that wouldn't, that wouldn't, um, that shouldn't take away from what your feelings on P Ryan are short burst is a lot more important vision and burst. He's got those two things. He's going to play on all three downs. He's really good in the pass game. Um, I was at the LSU game watching those guys last year. He made a couple ridiculous catches, um, one-handed catches and one on a tip ball for a touchdown against LSU. Really catches it well, good in pass pro. He had a one-handed touchdown here in the Senior Bowl week where he had to reach back and, and pluck it with one hand. And uh, so he's a three-down guy. I would expect him to be Le'Veon's top backup next year. And, and we've all seen mid-round running backs, you know, emerge as, as, as the guy. And uh, it wouldn't be – would not surprise me if, you know, in two or three years, that's what LaMichael Pirine is for the Jets because he, again, he, you know, he wasn't in a great situation there at Florida for, for four running backs in terms of running against stack boxes. Um, there wasn't a lot of space for him. And, uh, you know, I just think because juniors come out, you know, senior running backs sometimes get devalued. The, the junior guys get all the headlines. But Pirine's a really good, really good all-around running back. Yeah, I mean, you make a great point about the, uh, the the forty time and the you know another Florida Gator. I'm not comparing him to this guy, believe me. But you know Emmett Smith when he came, he wasn't a four four guy either when he came out, and I think he did pretty well for himself. So you you just you just never know. I mean, Le'Veon Bell is not a super fast guy either, and you know he's had a really good career. Not a great year last year, but he's had a good career overall. And the punter was also there, Braden Mann. Uh, to say in M two years ago, he won the Ray Guy Award as the top hunter in the nation. His stats just jump off the page. I'll be honest, I've never really seen him punt. I'm not a punting aficionado, but uh, how did he hit him down in Mobile? Yeah, I don't think you'll ever find a scout that says they're a punting aficionado either. Uh, <laughs> we uh, we really we really uh, lean heavily on the NFL for our specialists. Um, you know, when you're when you're working for a team, I mean, really what happens is, you know, the scouts, you know, are on the road all fall. And, and what you try to do is get a pretty good gauge of guys in your area that, that could be draftable or, or free agents, guys that you would bring to camp. I mean, there's only a couple drafted every year anyway. What you're trying to do as a, as a scout is identify the guys in your region that, that at least the special teams coach should, should spend some time on. Um, and then I've never seen a specialist drafted that didn't have the sign-off of a special teams coach. So um, scouts are pretty much out of that process. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a GM that, that would, would say that he made the specialist pick. It's, it's usually the special teams coach. So, But when we made our calls around the league last year, last November, about specialists, Braden was the consensus top guy. Um, you know, everyone had draftable grades on him. You know, Ray Guy winner, big leg. And that's the interesting thing about him. He's not a real big guy, but he's got a really big leg. Um, usually the, the guys with, that can really boom it are kind of longer levered guys, um, you know, 6'3", 6'4", 6'5". Braden's not that. I mean, you'll see him when, when, they, when they get to training camp. He's not a real big guy, but he's got, a, he's got a big leg. He's really consistent. He's good directionally. He's just a really skilled punter. Um, so he's a guy that I think is going to punt in the league for a long time. And, and if you can get a guy like that, um, you know, where they got him, again, address a big need like that in the sixth round and get the best guy at his position in the draft, um, I thought that was another good pick by Joe. So he didn't. This guy wasn't in the game, but you know we have to talk about Makai Becton, and and you know these players are you because you travel around the country and you're scouting year round, so you know these players. You know Makai Becton. The Jets took him 11th overall. He'll probably be a fixture for them. They hope he'll be a fixture for 10 or more years at left tackle. 
What did you think of Makai and in relation to the other highly regarded tackles that also went off the board pretty early? Yeah, I mean, I think he has the highest upside of, of that that group of four. Um, you know, Andrew Thomas at Georgia, Worth from Iowa, um, and, and Jedrick Wills from, from Alabama. Um, they were That group was all a little different, but I think the thing that made Becton different was that he does have the highest ceiling just from a physical traits perspective. I mean, he's a mountain of a man. Everyone sees what he ran in the 40, and that's that's pretty easy to see. That's a, a freaky number at, at 5-1 or whatever that was, you know, 5 Um But really, when you put on the tape, what's what's equally as, as unique is his initial quickness. To see a guy with a 6'7", 360, whatever, whatever the measurables ended up being, to see him come off the ball with the twitch that he does um, is, is hard to find. Um, and you see it in the run game. You see it in pass pro when he's kicking into his pass set. Uh, really long, hard to get around. I mean, when you got a guy with, with feet that are that good and, and that kind of length and size um, and width, I mean, he's just going to be a hard guy for guys to run around. So um, really high upside player. I mean, I think he's he's got a chance to be a Pro Bowl level guy in time. Um, you know, there's things he needs to clean up, obviously. I mean, it's it's you don't get many offensive linemen coming out of college football that are that are ready made and ready to go. But uh you know, they, 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 they potentially, they got a guy that, you know, you're going to have a two or three contract guy at left tackle. So, um, you know, it's a great guy to protect Sam Darnold with. And it's been a long time since the Jets had a two or three contract guy out of a first round pick. Oh, is the weight a concern for you? I mean, if you're an NFL uh, uh, GM, uh, you know, anybody who's 360 pounds, uh, is that a concern? Um, it wouldn't be just based off the tape, Rich, but that's the, the harder part now in this role at the Senior Bowl. You know, we're not, we, we don't have the budget to, uh, we go out to games every weekend and our staff, I mean, we're at 10, 12 games every weekend, but you don't have the benefit of going in the schools during the week. Um, so it would be, an, it, it would be a concern if you went into the school and the people were telling you that this guy really struggles keeping his weight down or if there's a work ethic concern where his weight balloons up in the off season or when he goes home on, you know, Christmas break or whatever, what have you, if you, you know, he comes back after summer and he's 400 pounds, that would be a concern. But based off the tape, no, he's not sluggish. Um, you know, he doesn't fatigue easily. So, so just based off the tape, no, but I, I don't know what they were saying about him uh, on the school visit. Just as a whole, what did you think of this first Joe Douglas draft? You know, first time at it and uh, comes away with Becton, Mims, Ashton Davis, and uh, Zuniga in the first three rounds, and, you know, we touched on some of their later picks. What did you think of Joe's first uh, draft? I think he, he did a great job. I got a ton of respect for Joe. Um, he and I got in the scouting business uh, right right at the same time, so I've known Joe a long time. I think, you know, Rex Hogan and, and Phil Savage, who, who work under him, are, are great at what they do. They've got some really good scouts on that staff. So, and we talked about all these guys, and they added good players throughout that are, that are going to add to this team. And you brought up Ashton Davis's name. He's a guy that was in Mobile as well. He just couldn't participate because of a because of an injury. But you know, they got him in the third round. I thought that was great value. I thought Ashton, if he were healthy through the process, had he had he been able to come to Mobile and compete and then go to the combine, he's a guy that could have could have gone in the late first round. I thought he was the best single high safety um, in the draft in terms of uh, you know range and be able to play in the deep middle of the field. Um, you know he's really a cool story. I think you're really gonna like you're really gonna like Ashton as a kid. Um, total overachiever. He's got a great story. You know, walk on there, worked himself into being an all Pac-12 track guy. 
Um, so he was going to run fast. If Ashton went to the combine, he was going to be a high four three, low four four guy all day, um, and, which would have gotten him probably in the no later than the early second round. So another guy they got really good value on that I would expect to start there. Um, you know, to me, he, Ashton's a, an early early career starter. Whether that's year one or year mm-hmm. two, you look at the tape that that dude's a starting safety all day long. So I know they've got Marcus May and Jamal Adams, um, but what you know, it'll be interesting what Greg Williams does with him because Ashton's a guy that I thought was athletic enough to play corner. Um, we were going to rep him at corner had he been healthy enough to come to the Senior Bowl. I, I know that there's a lot of guys in the league that, that shared that opinion, that they would have liked to have seen him play some corner. So I think that might be something for Jets fans to look look at during training camp is, is can they get any corner versatility out of Ashton Davis because he's certainly that good of an athlete. Wow, so they sounds like they got some sort of hybrid player there who who could almost be like a chess piece maybe for Greg Williams to move around and do different absolutely. things. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. And I don't know, do you know much about uh, James Morgan, the quarterback? To me, uh, I don't know, my personal opinion was maybe that's a little early to pick a quarterback at a, a developmental player at a at a FIU in the 4th round. Did you get a chance to to see him at all? He obviously played at Bowling Green before that. Uh, any takeaways on James Morgan? Yeah, I, I saw him personally play week one against Tulane at Tulane. And, and our uh, our Southeast scout lives uh, down there in South Florida. And uh, we saw him, I think we saw James three or four times last year total as a staff. So uh, a guy I'm kind of kicking myself on for not inviting to the game, honestly. Um, it wasn't a real deep quarterback draft. There were some teams taking shots late in the draft on certain guys. Um but, you know, just talking that group over with teams in November when we were trying to come up with the last couple guys for the roster, um, it, it just was a, it was a leaner group than the year before. Um, but James is a guy, he's got good size. He's, he's super smart. He's a total gym rat. Um, those guys are, are kind of a dying breed. You're, you're finding less and less quarterbacks that, you know, just kind of eat and sleep football and are around the building all the time. And that James, that's James Morgan. You know, Butch, Butch Davis actually called um, called the, the week of the Senior Bowl saying, hey, if you have an injury, you know, we'd love for you to bring our guy up. He, he, he won our team over in a couple of weeks. I mean, the guy was a grad transfer and, and got named uh, elected captain. I think, he, I think Butch said he was only there a couple of weeks. So, um, and he's got a nice live arm. You know, the, the thing that held me back a little bit on James was accuracy. Um, was was pretty streaky, but there's a lot of tools to work with. You get a big guy with a strong arm and a, and a work ethic like his, um, and leadership. That's a lot to work with. So, um, again, in the in the in the fourth round, to get a guy that that uh, you know you see as maybe the long term backup behind Sam Darnold, that's you can't argue with that. Hmm. Well, I, I the Jets got a lot of interesting guys. We didn't even talk about Bryce Hall, who from Virginia in the fifth round. He he would have gone much higher had he not been coming off that ankle injury, broken ankle. So I don't know. This sounds like it might be a very productive draft. And let me just ask you one last question. So a year from now, taking away Beckton and Mims because they were high picks, who will be the player in this Jets draft class that you know people in the media and fans are buzzing about? a year from now that maybe, you know, that aren't grabbing the headlines now? Oh, um, you said his name. If Bryce Hall is healthy and looking at their depth chart, he's got a chance to start for them depending on how that injury is. We had him at the top of our corner stack. 
um, last summer. He's a guy we really liked at the game, you know, a thought long-term he might be, you know, with his ball skills and, and his eyes and instincts, he might be a really good safety as well. But so I think he's got a clear path to uh, a starting spot if he, if he can, if he's healthy um, and how that, you know, if he can rebound and get back to what he was. I think P. Ryan's a guy that, that should get a lot of run. Uh, I know they brought in Frank Gore to, you know, uh, behind Le'Veon, but I think P. Ryan. And then, and then depending, we talked about the potential versatility with Ashton Davis. Um, you know, I know, I know Adams and May are good players. I like both those guys when they were coming out of college, but, but figuring out a way to maybe get Ashton in some, in some sub package work. Um, he's that talented. So, I would say one of those one of those three guys, or all three of those guys, to me, I, it wouldn't surprise me if all three of those guys are, are key contributors there next year. Great. Well, Jim, thank you so much. This is this is such great information. Just seeing it, for, you know, getting the info from a scout's perspective. I know the you know the fans really eat it up too. And I can't thank you enough for stopping in and talking about the Jets draft. Yeah, Rich. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. We'll be uh, we'll be posting all summer um, for next year's class. We're already on to the 2021 draft. Started posting some names this week. Um, we got 569 names on the board right now that we need to work through over the summer. Uh, scouting assistants have graded all of them, and now I got a I got a ton of catch up to do. So um, you can follow along all summer and get ahead on next year's draft. Yeah, and I encourage the uh, listeners to follow Jim on Twitter because he's always posting information about prospects and even videos of, of prospects, guys that have been drafted. So if you want to stay in tune with the draft, because it is not it is a year-round cottage industry, that's for sure. So uh, follow Jim on Twitter all year round. And, Jim, thanks so much for stopping in. Yeah, thanks again, Rich. And welcome back to the third quarter. We are opening the Twitter mailbag this week. A lot of good questions. Appreciate those questions firing them away on Twitter. And the first one comes from at Dutch Smitty talking about quarterbacks here. Injuries to Darnold have exposed the importance of a strong backup quarterback. Any word on Flacco, Newton, Winston or Simeon? What makes the Jets comfortable with their current situation? Great question, Dutch. I wrote about this recently on ESPN.com. The Jets need to solidify their backup quarterback situation. They are 0-6 over the last two years when Darnold does not play. Uh, unfortunately, Winston signed already. He's with uh, New Orleans. Uh, Cam Newton is just not a fit for the Jets. He'd be a disaster because you're talking about an instant quarterback controversy. Trevor Simeon, I don't think they're interested in him. He did not perform well for them last year before he got hurt. And Joe Flacco, as I reported, you know, he had neck surgery in early April. He still hopes to play. Uh, I'm told that I think he would be interested in playing for the Jets. He is a Jersey guy after all, but he's not going to be ready to play until late August or possibly early September. So I'm not sure if that works for the Jets timeline. Uh, they were interested in Andy Dalton. Probably more than they're letting on. That that was a, a flirtation there. The, a dandy obviously went to Dallas, but I can tell you for certain the Jets did have interest. 
Next question from Guarín Camargo. Uh, Juan Pablo was a student in my class this semester. I teach a class at Syracuse University, and Juan was one of the better students in the class, a writing class. And his question is, how can we be sure that Brashad Perryman can be a wide receiver number one for the Jets in 2020 if his best year was in the slot in Tampa with Godwin and Evans? Well, Juan, uh, I don't think the Jets see him as a wide receiver, number one. If they do, they're way off base. He is not that. And he's also not a slot receiver. I looked it up. He only had nine of his 36 catches last year were, were in the slot for Tampa Bay. So he is not a slot receiver. He is a outside speed guy, strictly an outside receiver. And uh, like I said, he's been an enigma for his entire career. I don't think he's going to suddenly morph into Tyreek Hill. So the Jets are going to need a lot of help around him. Next one from AKA whatever one. How does the running back situation shake out? A pertinent question, of course, because they just signed Frank Gore to a one year deal. So here's, here's specifically how I see it playing out. The average NFL team rushes about 400 times a year. So I think Bell will still be the number one guy. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, I, I'm projecting him at 220 carries, which is slightly off last year. I think he had 240-something last year. I think Gore put him down for 110. I think he'll get half of what Bell gets. So 220 for Bell, 110 for Gore. And LaMichael Pirine, I have him at about half of Gore's per total, so about 50 or 55. Uh, now... If the Jets are out of contention by midseason, I could see them trying to move Le'Veon Bell, trade him elsewhere, and just handing it over to the rookie, P. Ryan. I've heard good things about P. Ryan. Uh, you heard Jim Nagy in the second quarter talk about him. Very high on him as an all-around back. So that's how I think it'll shake out. Bell still the one, but Gore two, and P. Ryan coming strong as the three. Next question from at T9B31. Do you think the Jets will spend their remaining cap aggressively or roll it over into 2021 out of fear that the cap might take a hit because of COVID-19? It's a really timely uh, question, and I suggest you read Jason Fitzgerald on OverTheCap.com because he has an interesting article about how the potential loss of revenue due to the virus could impact next year's salary cap. Now he's, Jason knows this stuff. He's even projecting that the cap could go down to drop from a projected 215 to somewhere around 130, 150 million, which would be a major, major hit for teams. So if the Jets want to roll over their money. So right now they have about 15 million in cap room. They're going to get another 11 million on June 1st because of the Tremaine Johnson situation. And they still have to pay their rookies, but that will not be a huge dent in the cap because uh, of the top 51 rule. So I think the Jets will probably have about 22 to 24 million, assuming they don't make any other big signings. So they could roll that over into next year and that will help them a lot next year right now they have 148 million committed to next year's cap like i said if that drops to 130 or 140 they'll be in serious cap trouble so yeah i do think joe douglas will try to roll over some money next one from at sports narrative which such depth on the defensive line could they 
package Henry Anderson or even Quinn and Williams and Brian Winters and Avery Williamson a deal with draft picks to Jacksonville for Yannick Ngakwe. There is no chance that deal is happening. The Jaguars, I think, would be receptive to trading him, but they want a first-round pick. And you're offering Henry Anderson. No one's going to take that salary. Quinn and Williams is not tradable. The cap hit hit for the Jets is prohibitive. Brian Winters and Avery Williamson are coming off major injuries. They have no trade value. So that that trade that you proposed, uh, Mr. Narrative, is a non-starter. And our last one comes from at the real Rigiwaro. I I totally botched that up, and I. Uh, apologize for that. The real Ri Aguaro. And the question is, why don't they release Brian Winters and sign Larry Warford? It's for the same money. Am I missing something? And I think a lot of Jet fans are wondering the same thing because Brian Winters makes about $7 million. Larry Warford, just cut by the Saints, is looking for reportedly $7 million. It's an even swap out. Uh, you know, I don't think the Jets are going there. I think they feel comfortable with what they've done on the offensive line. They re-signed Alex Lewis. They uh, brought in Greg Van Roten, although Van Roten's salary, which is about three and a half a year, is certainly not the kind of salary that means he has to start. He could be in a reserve role for that salary. And then, of course, they have Brian Winters, who's coming off shoulder surgery. He's a bit of a question mark. Ultimately, could be a cap casualty. But uh, Warford made the Pro Bowl for three straight years, although from the people I talked to in New Orleans, I think his play declined a little bit at the end of last season. He uh, may not be a scheme fit for the Jets, who are trying to become more athletic on the offensive line. He is more of an old-fashioned road grader. The Jets trying to run more zone plays. I don't think Warford would be a great fit in that. So that's why, ultimately, I don't think the Jets are going to go there. I think right now, if they sign someone in that financial category, it would be a Logan Ryan. Getting a lot of questions from fans, and certainly it is the hot topic now, uh, the hot button issue about speculating on what kind of season will happen due to the COVID-19 virus, the pandemic, which has basically shut down our society for the last couple of months. Um, just from talking to people, and I'm not a scientist or a medical doctor here, so I, I'm in no position to give an exact forecast of what happened, what will happen, but I don't think there's any chance of the season opening on time with a full stadium. Uh, do not see that at all. I even have strong doubts about whether they will open on time in a partially filled stadium. You're talking about areas of the country in New Jersey and California that are still, for the most part, closed. So don't see that happening. I think the NFL, we know they recently extended the virtual offseason to the end of May. Uh, I think there's probably even a chance training camp will get pushed back to some degree. So it'll be a really interesting decision. I think they'll take their cue from the federal authorities and medical uh, experts. Uh, it's going to be an interesting one because they could probably start somewhere in mid-October. 
to a partial stadium or do they want to wait even longer, maybe December, January, to, with the hope of playing before a full stadium? You're talking about major, major revenue from ticket sales and concessions that are on the line there. You know, the difference between a partial stadium and a full stadium. So that'll be a fascinating decision as we go forward. I can tell you right now, players are creating on their own different ways to stay in shape. I was actually talking to C.J. Mosley about a week ago. He's been in New Jersey. He created a, uh, a gym in the basement of his home in New Jersey. He got some light weights, a rowing machine, a stationary bike, just trying to do different things, a treadmill, working out on his own. Steve McClendon is down in the Atlanta area. He actually, this is coinciding with the opening of a new gym, a commercial gym that he's, I know he's been working on it for a long time. This has been really a, a passion of his for the last few years. Uh, and uh, he's it's in Flowery Branch, Georgia, and he's inviting uh, jet players in the area to come over, guys like Jordan Jenkins. And those guys are working out there with Steve and other people, which creates a very interesting dynamic. When we were doing a Zoom call with Steve the other day, in the background, you could see a bunch of kids uh, playing tug-of-war and going through some gym-type stuff uh, that you would normally do at your local gym. Now, it should be noted that in Georgia, the rules are a lot more relaxed than in New York and New Jersey. Uh, so they can have uh, gym access. So it'll be interesting. It, it reminds me of, you know, when there were work stoppages in the past, obviously for totally different reasons. But uh, in 2011, when they had the lockout and training camps weren't starting, you know, players were working out on their own. And I remember going to a high school in New Jersey. I think it was Hanover High School right near the Jets facility. And there were a couple of reporters there. And it was Mike DeVito, Sione Buha, and a young Mo Wilkerson, who was just a rookie at the time, the defensive line and a few others, they got together and did some drills working out on a, a basically a totally empty high school field. Very surreal scene. And we were there. I know I was taking video and those guys uh, were really cool about letting us watch that. And the real one, though, and I'm really dating myself here, going back to 1987, the players strike. When players were picketing outside of team facilities, I know for the younger guys, that's hard to imagine, but this was the case. Players just standing outside the facility trying to prevent, you know, the scabs from crossing the picket line. And I was there that day when Mark Gastineau decided to cross the picket line. And I vividly remember him driving through a gate at the Jets facility at Hofstra. He was in his Mercedes. Of course, he was uh, one of the star players in the NFL at the time. So he's crossing the picket line and his teammates were throwing eggs at his car, just bombarding him with eggs, which was just a totally surreal scene and uh, he crossed the line and that ended up playing three replacement games and before they ended up settling that strike and uh, they got back to football hopefully you know again totally different circumstances that was all financially financial based on that dispute this is an entirely different dispute this is a pandemic so different circumstances and i hope we don't have to resort to covering practices in weird places and going through stuff like that hopefully 
everything will settle down and we'll get back to football and getting back to society. But anyway, that's this week's podcast of Flight Deck. I want to thank my producer, Jeff Scopin, and our guest this week, Jim Nagy, the executive director of the Senior Bowl. Appreciate him stopping in. I uh, hope you can continue to listen to Flight Deck. Please subscribe and you can pick it up on Apple or Spotify or Google Play. And of course, on any of the ESPN platforms, it's called Flight Deck. Thanks for stopping by. Stay well and stay safe.